Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And there was no episode yesterday because I was feeling kind of crummy, and I'm still feeling kind of crummy today. I can't tell whether it is, you know, an overindulgence in books, or whether I have some sort of annoying cold, or whether I have hay fever, or some other sort of thing that's just making me feel, you know, crap. But I'm going to try to record an episode today um, more out of my ingrained Protestant work ethic than out of any sort of joy or intellectual excitement. Um, Be warned. And also be warned because today we're going to be going into some historiography. Historiography is the history of history, remember. It is historians talking about what other historians say about stuff. It's very important for us as a profession, but I'm not sure of how interesting it is to other people. Um, But today what we're going to be talking about is the historiography of business history, uh, particularly the doyen of business history, Alfred D. Chandler. Um, He's mostly read by uh, business historians in business schools. He was actually appointed in the Harvard Business School, uh, where he taught. Um, But with the rise of the uh, field, the history of capitalism, of which I'm kind of participating in, Chandler is being read more and more today by mainstream historians. Just a quick anecdote about this, uh, there's still a lot of resistance to uh, business history and to a lot of the sociology that I'm interested in. Um, I was reading one of Chandler's books in a class, and uh, one of my colleagues looked at it and kind of was, you know, made a funny face because it says, like, the dynamics of capitalism, and then looked on the inside and saw that it was dedicated to, like, the business history uh, workshop of the Harvard Business School and was like, why are you reading this? It was like I was, you know, reading the Book of Satan. So uh, it might help to just give a little brief biographical note of Alfred Chandler just so that you can see on which side of this, you know, ideological fence that he's on. His great-grandfather was H.V. Poor, who is the founder of Standard & Poor's, the ratings agency. Um, So he is from finely bred capitalist stock. Uh, You also should note that the D in the name Alfred D. Chandler stands for DuPont, um, as in the gigantic DuPont chemical company, which he, in fact, studies. So what Chandler looks at is the rise of capitalism in the 19th and 20th centuries, particularly American capitalism. And the really important thing there is the railroads, the American railroads. The American railroads create a new landscape for organizations because they create gigantic, fast markets that demand new forms of managerial organization. These are first seen in the railways themselves. And his story is that the spread of a particular kind of organizing business uh, happens because it's more efficient. The spread of the Industrial Revolution in railroads changes the landscape of commerce and so makes new kinds of opportunities for organizations. For Chandler, organizations develop evolutionarily and they tend towards being more efficient. These more efficient organizations win out. For Chandler, the big organization that wins in the 19th century is the big organization. These large organizations are able to manage efficiencies of scale 
and scope far better than smaller organizations. And so they're able to dominate the market because of first mover advantages. The first couple companies on the scene snatch up everything because it pays to be really big. And then after they start to dominate the market, other companies cannot come along and get as big as them because they're crowded out. The only way for new companies to come along is through some sort of creation of new kinds of competition. Uh, organizationally, these new kinds of large companies are really novel in that they are multi-divisional and run by salaried managers. So this is important because you know you you have a decoupling of ownership and of management. Salaried professional managers are the only people who can you know understand the complex technical needs of these new kinds of corporations, and also to manage every single little individual bit is too hard for any individual, and so they're split out into a decentralized system in which different departments have basic fiefdoms that are you know loosely organized by central committees. Then importantly. As these new kinds of organizations grow, they start to force out other kinds of organizations. And Chandler uses this in his book, Scale and Scope, to explain the dynamics of capitalism in a bunch of different companies. American capitalism, the original and the best, is able to outcompete everybody else because it alone creates these like large, you know, powerful mammoth corporations that can compete with economies of scale and scope. Britain, on the other hand, even though it has the first industrial revolution, does not manage to get the kinds of organizational tools to compete in the second industrial revolution. Its firms remain small and family oriented. You don't get professional managers and you don't get runaway growth mainly. And this makes them unable to do this kind of forward and backwards integration that Chandler thinks is so important. Uh, Germany is kind of a middle way. They have big organizations, but they are more cooperative than the competitive American organizations. I mean, the important thing about Chandler, and Chandler is kind of inescapable when you read about this stuff, is that Chandler boils down this complicated history and this boring history of a bunch of different business developments, a bunch of different developments and in management into a clear typology that's very easy to read. Uh, it's so clear that his book titles basically just sum up the book's argument in, in, in an enviable manner. It's really easy for a grad student because you just need to remind yourself of what the book is called to remember what's important about it. His first book, Strategy and Structure, argues that business strategy changes business structure and not the other way around, that organizational forms follow the strategies that particular businesses take. His second book, The Visible Hand, argues that there's a big change of capitalism in the middle of the 19th century, away from the kinds of competitive markets that uh, Adam Smith discussed in The Invisible Hand, and to a form of manage managerial organization in which key economic decisions are made by expert managers, The Visible Hand. His third book, Scale and Scope, argues that we, if we want to understand 20th century capitalism, we have to understand the benefits of the scale and scope of large organizations and understand how particular uh, countries' uh, corporations either you know, pick up on these efficiencies or don't. That's it.
And he's also empirically grounded. He's full of facts and figures. He's full of rich stories. He's able to make these kinds of business histories, you know, interesting, which is hard. But there's a number of things that he misses out on. And as you read a lot of business history, you kind of see a bunch of people as basically like writing correctives to Chandler. One of the biggest things that's missing from his account is the state. Um, so in the, the example that he gives of the rise of American railroads, he does not pay a ton of attention to the state, but state regulation is a huge deal with the railroads, uh, often for some of the same reasons why the railroads need to coordinate. The railroads need to coordinate because there is an incredibly complicated uh, uh, system that's going over large distances and failure leads to train crashes. So in a lot of places, uh, the government steps in and says, okay, look, we need to regulate, you know, the number of brakes on, on, on trains, or we need to regulate whether third-class carriages have to have walls. Um, and in America, uh, uh, this is especially important because in the middle of the 19th century, as these organizations are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, the railroads have an outsized role in politics and even start to, you know, capture politicians and you know, do bad stuff like steal people's land and, you know, create financial bubbles. Um, and also, I mean, this points to a bigger problem of his evolutionary approach to explaining what happens uh, to capitalism is that it's not simply the efficiency of these organizations that means that they get better. It's that they become too big to fail and they become so big that they have a political stake. And this means that they're able to get the power of the state on their side when they need it most. Um, it also, you know, then fails to explain adequately how this American big business multidivisional firm model spreads. Uh, it doesn't just spread because, you know, it's more efficient. It spreads because after the Second World War, there was an active push towards countries taking up this model because people thought it was better. Um, but this push was done not because, you know, it was better, but because there were these networks of experts who traded information and said, this is how you run a firm in a capitalist society and you have to do this because you don't want to become communist Russia and we're giving you like lots of loans from um, the uh, uh, Marshall Plan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. With Britain, um, the thing that he misses is the role of the gigantic state. He says that, look, Britain does not succeed in, at capitalism in the 20th century because it doesn't have large organizations that can capitalize in scale and scope. But we might rephrase this and say, look, in any given country, in any given you know, unit of analysis, what matters isn't whether business is big, but what matters is what is the largest organization in town. In America, it's the railroads or the, uh, uh, you know, industrial firms. In Britain, it's not private business. It's the state. The state is really, really big. It, it accounts for, I think, like 50% of the economy throughout the 19th century. And it undergoes some of the same, you know, things that happen in American organizations over the 19th century. It, too, becomes decentralized. It, too, goes from being managed by owners or, you know, MPs to being managed by experts who are trained in particular kinds of things and given particular kinds of, uh, you know, scopes of, of action. Um, in business, you get divisions that are run by managers. In the British uh, state, 
you have inspectorates and divisions and you know various kinds of of, of salaried bureaucrats who are given um, you know statutory power over particular uh, realms of social life. You get education commissioners who are basically able to do semi-legislative stuff without getting bills passed through parliament because parliamentary power has been ceded to them because, hey, they're the experts. Um, this becomes even more of a, a telling comparison when you think, well, look, the British state isn't just a multi-divisional corporation. It is also a multinational multi-divisional corporation when you take into account the colonies. Um, the second thing that that Chandler kind of leaves out is alternatives to big business. Um, he says, look, the economies of scale and scope means that in the 19th and 20th century, big business is the rule of the day. But the economies of scale and scope only really work for some kinds of manufactured goods, uh, things that don't happen to be you know, ver that variable, where you can produce tens of thousands of units and they don't change all that much. For other kinds of mass-produced goods, uh, that are you know more in tune with fashion or have much smaller markets, um, it's more important to have very flexible production in smaller or medium-sized firms where you have highly skilled people working. And this is what capitalism was like in Britain and, and, and in Germany. Rather than having gigantic you know Ford-style factories, you would have uh, people working in workshops with, you know, general purpose machines that through their skill could create a lot of goods. Um, and this makes a different form of capitalism. Um, there's also a lot of subcontracting going on, uh, which is kind of counter to uh, Chandler's claims. This is especially important for the Japanese case, where uh, Japanese capitalism is based on core companies that are, you know, multi-divisional and, uh, you know, conglomerates and all that, but they rely on stable subcontractor relationships to do a lot of the stuff that they do. Um, another thing that, that, that Chandler misses is culture. He wants to explain everything by uh, national efficiency, uh, by the efficiency of particular kinds of structures to, to do particular kinds of things. And so he misses out on the fact that people are not motivated in general by efficiency, they're motivated by cultural factors. Uh, one example of this is in purported declines of British industry. Uh, we might have talked about it last episode, I can't remember, so I'll briefly recap uh, this idea for you. One of the ideas of why Britain did not capitalize in the Second Industrial Revolution was that they were too busy being, you know, gentlemen. Uh, when you had an entrepreneur who did something great, like build a, you know, a steel factory, they did not want to be an entrepreneur for the rest of their life. And sure as hell, they did not want their kids to be entrepreneurs. So they sent their kids to Eaton. And instead of reinvesting their profits in steel companies or whatever they, they were making their money on, they reinvest their profits in land, which just gave them cultural cachet. This meant that their, the next generation was not educated in the same sorts of skills or, you know, behaviors that led to uh, people being actually successful. Well, I'm very tired. Um, I hope that this wasn't too tiring for you guys. I hope that it made some sort of sense. Um, thanks very much for listening. I hope tomorrow I will be back up to scruff. Um, thanks to Duncan Barton for the image and thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music. Uh, if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If this is your first time listening, please listen to an older episode where I'm not uh, miserable. 
on, and uh, I'll see you guys tomorrow.